All right, so we're going to continue in the Old Testament book of uh, Numbers today, and we're going to, um, th- this chapter is remarkable. Um, and to use Joe's analogy a little bit, in this chapter, we're going to see the people of God in Israel not just sit in their chair not caring. They're going to pretty much light the chair on fire and run in the other direction, <laughs> blow it up a little bit. So um, this is a remarkable passage. And um, to get us started, I want to read a quote by Marilyn Robinson that kind of um, helps us know a little bit what to look for. This is uh, from her um, book, Gilead, and it's uh, character Ames talking. Defensiveness, at the most basic level, it expresses a lack of faith. And often enough, when we think that we're protecting ourselves, we are struggling against the rescuer. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen with Israel, is um, they are not just kicking against the goads, but they are resisting their rescuer and redeemer and their God at absolutely every level. And one of the other things that's amazing about this passage of Scripture, it's a long one, okay? It's all of chapter 14. Um, We're going to read the story. The way we're going to attack it today is just read it in small chunks, talking about it as we go through. Um, But this is remarkable in another way in that um, Psalm 95, which we read at the beginning of the service, it remembers this story. Um, And it remembers the glory of God and all the warnings that are supposed to come out of this passage. Also, um, the passage that uh, Aaron read, that Hebrews chapter 3, that's the New Testament commentary on what we're going to read about in Numbers 14. And so it is, it's a chapter that the people of God for many, many years, they've, they've read it, they've heard the story, their kids heard the story. So it's great that the kids are in here today. And there was a strong encouragement and admonishment that was supposed to come every time that this story was read. Where we're going to land today is ways that we, as the church, we, as the people of God, um, are um, encouraged to take care in light of what we read today. Hebrews uh, 3, um, just part of that, I'll read some of it now and some of it again later, as was already read to us. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. And Lord, I want to thank you that uh, by your grace, you have made your people share in Christ. So, Lord, I pray for heart softening and repentance, that we would hear your word, and that we would respond to it as such this morning, and that we would find ourselves renewed in your grace because you are the faithful one, Lord Jesus. And we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Scott, let's get us started. We're going to look at the first four verses. If you have a bulletin, you can follow along there. Um, But um, Scott's going to put it up on the the screens as well behind me. Full-on rebellion. If you remember from last week, if you were here, Steve led us through Numbers uh, 13, where God gives a command, hey, 12 spies, go into the land of Canaan, the promised land that I'm going to give to my people, and you're supposed to spy it out, see what's in there, uh, see uh, what resources are there, see who your enemies are, and then come back and give a report. And the spies did come back and give a report, 
And there were two reports, and the bad report won the day. And the people started to believe, yes, it's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey, big grapes, but there are big cities there and big people. And they seek to devour us. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So not only, not only do they want to return to Egypt, but that unbelief that we heard about in Numbers 13 escalates into people wishing for death over the option of God leading them this next step of the way. Right? They're actually saying, the two choices I prefer at this point is death here, death in Egypt. I would rather be dead at this point. Um, but something else really, really desperate is happening here, and that is that the people of God no longer doubt God's provision and no longer doubt their leaders um, but they start to attribute some pretty evil motives to God. If you look, what they say here, you know when it says, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They're saying, God plans to kill us anyway. God's against us. And our wives and our little ones will become a prey. He wants to kill our wives and our little ones too. Um, it is a pretty powerful picture of the way that unbelief starts to work and people start to become suspicious of God. Um, one of the things that we uh, have been doing on Wednesday nights in our group called The Unbelieving Life. I mean, The, the Unbelieving Life. That's the problem. That's why we're doing The Believing Life. Michael, it's The Believing Life, right? I'm going to the right class, right? Okay. Oh. But one of the things that we've been talking about is because of our kind of constant companion unbelief and the way that God needs to give us grace in the midst of that, um, we tried to unpack a little bit about the suspicions that we have sometimes that God might not really be permanently facing towards us. Or that sort of plank that, Steve, uh, that, that uh, Joe put up between the two chairs might not actually be a, a sufficient bridge, a sufficient reconciliation. And so um, we know, we can say, I have my father's favor, sometimes as a Christian. But um, sometimes we have days where we commit sins or... We just are in seasons where we wonder, God, could it be that you're beginning to oppose me? Could it be that you're, like, demanding something from me that I don't even really know about? Because one of the purposes of the Bible, and this, I didn't make this up. This has been a long time understanding of the Bible. But one of the purposes of the Bible is it's supposed to be a mirror to the people of God. Then one of the things that we do, the reason why we read the Bible so much here when we come to church, is because... Um, it teaches us the truth about God, but it also, as a mirror would, it holds us uh, an image of ourselves. We look in it, and we see ourselves in Israel. 
And we see that just as Israel struggled with this sort of um, profound unbelief and, and a doubting that God was truly for his people, so it is with the people of God. That We shouldn't be surprised if we wrestle with the very same things as well. And so the people of God say, let's get a new leader and let's return to the old slavery. That would be much better. And if we happen to be killed in the process, it is no loss to us. So the leaders of Israel are going to respond. If that's the way that the people of God are responding to this report and this unbelief, the leaders have something to say and to do in the face of that too. Starting in verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said, to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then... All the congregation said to stone them with stones. A little twist at the end, right? You think that what happens is Moses and Aaron, as the leaders of Israel, they fall flat on their faces. Now they're not worshiping Israel. They're worshiping the Lord there. That demonstration is, oh my goodness, I'm in the presence of something that's blasphemous. Lord, I prostrate myself before you. And then you have the spies, the two believing spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, i got to remind you of what we actually saw when we spied out the promised land, milk and honey, okay? There are inhabitants. But do you remember, too, that there are promises that go with this? The Lord delights in his people as they follow him. Hasn't it been true that he's guided us all through this wilderness? Hasn't been true that he delivered us through the sea? Hasn't it been true that he defeated our enemies and brought us through slavery? Hasn't it been true that when we were hungry, he gave us manna and he's given us quail? Hasn't it been true that he's corrected us all along when we needed correction? He's been a sufficient shepherd, too. All these things have been true. And so Joshua and Caleb, they don't only tear their clothes as an act of repentance, too, in response to the blasphemy, but they preach a message to them, and they call them to remember all the things that were actually true. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. If you remember last week, Steve made the, the comment about um, when uh, the folks are called grasshoppers at the end of chapter 13 and said, that's a, that's a food image. That means those giants in that land are going to eat us like we snack on grasshoppers. This is the spies, the believing spies, Joshua and Caleb saying, uh, actually the opposite is true. You guys are so flipped, you don't understand that they are bred to us. It is us that have been given the victory and will devour them. Um, this fear, again, it's, it's amazing. That from the unbelief and the doubt of God, um, from the rejection of God comes this sort of rampant fear amongst the people as well. Um, a joke that we have in my house that we revisit often is that my son Coleman, who is a awesome, confident um, you know, godly young man. All these things are true about him. But we remember him when he was a two-year-old boy, okay? Um, 
And our joke about Coleman during that time of his development is that Coleman was always afraid of the wrong thing. Coleman would be fearless if it was just sort of him against the elements, against nature. Um, We would go to the ocean, and Coleman at age two would walk straight into the ocean and the waves and keep on walking until we had to pull him out of there. He didn't know how to swim, right? But these things did not deter him. Time and time again, jump into the pool. I can swim. No, you can't swim. Oh, we know you. You, We've been through this. You can't swim, you know? Or the other thing I remember seeing the steps in front of me, how many times did Coleman think he could walk down the steps when he was still in that scooting stage where he had to like turn around, you know, and kind of lay down and go down, slide down the steps that way? But he, we'd catch him and he'd be like getting ready to step off the top step of our staircase and we had to go either pick him up or stop him from doing that. But he's so fearless about those sorts of things and it's, the message was not getting through. Um, but if he would see a dog on the street, He's in the safety of his house. He looks out the window. Our neighbor's walking their dog. He would have a complete mental breakdown and was afraid that that dog was coming to get him, even though there was a house between him and the animal on the street. Well, here we have the people of God, very similar. They just end up being afraid of all the wrong things. They are to fear the Lord. Instead, they can't hear the promises and they forget the generations of faithfulness. And they're overcome with fear, and absolutely everything gets flipped. Isaiah said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And they're effectively saying, we've got to get rid of this God. He's no God at all, and we have to get rid of these brothers who represent them. It's interesting that they move to stoning, right? Because what is stoning? Stoning at this point for Israel, that's the punishment you give to folks that blaspheme the Lord. That's the punishment you give to the God deniers. And here the God deniers usurp the punishment and try to get rid of the God and stone those that represent him. That is a desperate flipping of reality. Well, the Lord responds. It's not just the leaders. And we see here that the Lord's presence comes and is known amongst the people. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you, speaking to Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. And so we hear the Lord begin to execute justice in light of this terrible rebellion. And he asks, how long? Usually a question reserved for the people of God in lament. That's, that's what the people of God are usually saying. How long are you going to languish in slavery? How long till you show your face? Um, how long will my enemy uh, afflict me? Now here it is the Lord using that how long against those that are acting as his enemies. And he says, justly, I'm going to strike them. And I have to disinherit them. That a people that want to be killed, a people that want to reject me as their God, they it's just to do that, but also it's ironically just what they want as well. So Moses responds again. And not simply with a laying down in front of the Lord, but he speaks to the Lord. 
as Moses has done oftentimes in the book of Numbers. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So Moses goes before the face of the Lord the one who meets face-to-face with his people. And he makes an appeal on behalf of the people, an appeal that they don't even want. So it's interesting that he doesn't have anything to say about what these people have done, what they have sacrificed, or even their, you know, their heritage. He makes an appeal directly to God about things that are true about who God is. That's the only thing that Moses does in this appeal. As McLaren says, the appeal is not based on anything in the people. God's not asked to forgive them because of their repentance. There is no repentance. The opposite is happening. Or their faith. There is no faith. Unbelief is happening. True, these are the conditions on which his pardon is received by us. But they're not the reasons why it's given by him. So Moses makes this appeal to God. He says, Don't you remember, Lord, your concern for your own fame and glory? And he says to him, don't you remember your your word of promise? That you have always said that you were going to be a God to these people. That you're going to make a way for them. That you were going to give them the promised land. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Don't you remember all that you have promised? And Lord, don't you remember your name? That whole bit where he kind of revisits the name of God. Um, That's the covenant. Uh, When we read Lord in our English Bible, that's Yahweh. That is the covenant name of God, how he revealed himself. And it's not just simply a name, but it's a character and purposes of the living God as well. And he calls that to mind and says, Lord, do you remember that you are merciful and you are just? And will you act in light of that? Well, the Lord does respond. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and the descendants and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, 
How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, and they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you have spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. So the Lord hears Moses' plea based on his character, his name, his word, his promises, his glory. He does hear. And God does say, I have pardoned according to your word. And he does not treat the people as their sins deserve. But there is justice. The spies who gave the bad report die of a pestilence. And the people of God who did not take him at his word and rebelled against him, now they have a 40-year time of wandering. But the children, those 20 and under, are given the inheritance. Though they will suffer with their parents for the season of time. I, one of the things I, I think about this, first of all, it is just um, amazing to think about what it would be like to be have, have led by God through so many perils and um, to defeat so many enemies to this point. And then to be brought up right at the cusp, the, the brink of the promised land. And it says here that God turns them back exactly the same way they came. They actually start heading back towards the Red Sea, back into the wilderness, even though they were within striking distance of Canaan. And so they sort of cease to be pilgrims with a, with a, you know, a destiny and a destination in mind. And they become nomads, uh, aimless people, folks that are just surviving. I mean, I think we can identify with that too, that you can weather all kinds of opposition and affliction if you feel like you have a destination in mind. But if you feel like I am in a time of wilderness and wandering, that's hard on a soul. That is very hard on a soul. Folks always ask when they read this too, they find it curious that God was set on killing Israel as one man and seemed to relent when Moses interceded. And so did Moses change God's mind? Or did he, did somehow, did God forget his promises? 
I, mean, I think that's one of the questions that's worth asking. I think briefly, when I read this, I think it's just a model of how prayer works for all of us, really. That the Lord is just in all of his ways and his chosen means of grace and relationship with the people is we can only hear the word of God and then pray God's words back to him. We can only hear what God's promised and go to him on that basis. That's, that's always true. I mean, when we have, our, we have our prayer meetings here at the church, they're always the same. It's we show up, and because we don't even know what we should pray for, because we'll pray about things that are just sort of immediate or, or just sort of health issues or something like that, good things to pray for. But we need to read God's word, and then we read the word, and then all of a sudden our concerns become his concerns. We pray in light of what he declared to be true. That's just always been the way that it works with God's people. And so we see this with Moses. God says what would be just, but he hears Moses plead the promises and character of God, and God acts in light of that as well. But there's one more facet to the story, and this is sort of the final phase, um, that it's extraordinary. And it's extraordinary because, you know, what would you, if you guys have read a lot of Bible, heard a lot of sermons, what would you think would happen next, you know, um, at this point in the story? When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, and the people mourned greatly, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, here we are, we will go to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant nor the Lord uh, of, the, of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Horma. And Horma is a Hebrew word that means destruction. We've talked often about how these places actually um, mark what happened there too. So there's actually further rebellion and a new kind of rebellion breaks out here. If the old rebellion is, you know, there is no God and I reject the leaders of God and the purposes of God, now all of a sudden they recognize the Lord in a weird way and they say, let's go take the land. When prior what was happening was they're like, we're not going near that land. We'll be destroyed. Now all of a sudden they're interested in taking the land. Um, it's a fascinating turn of events. So they go to war against the Amalekites and the Canaanites, against the warnings of Moses, but they go without God's presence. There's no Ark of the Covenant with them. Um, they go without a leader. They go without Moses, who was uh, appointed to go with them everywhere. And they're defeated, and they're driven back. Well, I said that we read this story, and I, and I just took the time to kind of explain it as we went along, but there are... Um, purposes in this story for us as a church this morning, as the church. And we are supposed to hear a story like this and not just understand it and shake it, our, our heads at a strange people, but see ourselves in the story of Israel in the wilderness and the kinds of conflicts they got into with each other and with the Lord and what the Lord did on their behalf. 
And indeed, what we're supposed to do is to take care lest any kind of hardness or unbelieving heart wells up even in the people of God who know God in his favor. That what we are to do is to have a heart test in light of what we read. And we're also supposed to see something true about who God is and what his purposes are. Again, from Hebrews 3, 7 through 14, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. And take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why? For we have come to share in Christ, indeed, if we hold to our original confidence, firm to the end. I believe this scripture is encouraging us to take care in some uh, key ways this morning. I think that we are, as we read this, as we hear the account, and we hear what the New Testament says about it, that we are to take care whenever we're, t- we're tempted to assign bad motives to God. And usually the indicator is, can I go back to Egypt, whatever your version of that is, or I'd rather die. And we have have a a group that's been meeting at our house on Sunday nights, and we were talking about um, this past Sunday night, that feeling you get when you are, like, caught in your sin or so deeply ashamed or fail so hard that you just sort of wish you could evaporate, right? You ever have that feeling? You get exposed, and you're like, oh, no, God, can you just take me out right now? Um. There is that feeling um, sometimes that comes because we suspect that somehow God has run out of grace for us. That we wonder, is this the last time that habitual sin can be committed? And now I've dis- been disqualified. You ever feel that way? Or you feel like if God really knew the truth about me, um, he'd have nothing to do with me. Again, back to this class we do on Wednesday night, we were just talking about how hard it is to believe that that the favor of our Father through Jesus Christ is a permanent favor. We can say that with our mouth, but we're so tempted to believe that somehow he might just remove it. And somehow, somehow, we could become disqualified. Um, Simply put, in in light of what we've heard, The cross of Jesus is telling a completely different story than that, a completely different story. We might be tempted to think um, this sinner should be disqualified, but God has something else to say about sinners, and that is this. They are atoned for. And so sinners, trust that God himself has taken your place and the punishment that was due to you. And, as we read about in Numbers, it's not simply a passing over for a time. God relented in light of his promises and his purposes, and as he looked forward to what Moses was really pointing to, and he said, I will not destroy the people, I will not obliterate them. In fact, there is going to be a promised land for the next generation. This is more than that. The cross isn't just a second chance or a chance for our kids. The cross is a final word on sin and death. That sin... And its power has been destroyed. The power to separate us from God, destroyed. The power to rule us and control our destiny of hell, destroyed. The sin that was separating us and confusing us and blocking us from God, not from, 
That's been taken away. And the cross says a different story about the people of God. Not that we're in a tenuous situation for him, but for all who are in Christ, you are in a permanent situation from him, with him. He has taken away your sin and the curse, and there is no more wrath for the people of God. So take care, brothers and sisters. We've come to share in Christ. Another thing is that we can take care. Um, again, I think it's just so remarkable that the people wanted to stone um, those spies and those leaders. So we should take care when we hear the story um, when you want to stone the messenger who's encouraged you to trust Jesus. I, we, we, one of the things I know, we've got a bunch of different cultures represented here today, but there is, um, there is a culture with some of our people here today, a culture of cynicism. We love cynicism. We love, it's kind of, um, uh, I don't know, it kind of earns us some points sometimes. But just, be a, just be a little bit hard, you know? A little bit skeptical. Um, and I noticed something about me is um, I am so prone that if you want to encourage me with the gospel, if I'm in a certain place, I might just sort of give you the stiff arm and say, yeah, I'd rather not hear that. Um, I'm unencourageable at the moment. Uh, and I think here that there's a warning here that if, if God is sending messengers to say, look at our faithful God, we, we need that kind of encouragement on a regular basis. I, I don't know why this story came to me this morning, but I remember being a elementary school age kid going to church um, in my tiny Episcopal church in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And there was all, you know, at, at this Episcopal church, it was dark, it was cold. For me as a kid, it was scary. I'm glad our kids here love to come up front. I would never do that at my church. Um, I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. And I had barely an idea of what was going on. But I do remember I was probably in fifth grade, and I remember there would be this section of the church called Prayers of the People, and people would stand up, and like week after week, the priest would say, uh, do you have any concerns? Usually nobody said anything, but occasionally someone would say, you know, my grandmother is sick, or something along those lines. But one day, this dude stands up, and he said, I am a sinner who has been saved by grace. I've gotten converted, and I believe in Jesus. And nobody knew what was going on. <laughs> and I remember my mom being like, they're going to throw that guy out. I mean, he's disturbing the service. <laughs> it's so funny to think about this. And so I, I was a kid. I found it kind of simultaneously like compelling, like something different's happening. Who else is going to stand up? What are they going to say, you know? Um, but also, we kind of learned to, to hate that guy. Because it, the guy didn't stop there. He started doing things like, you know, when we sing the songs, he would actually sing them at the top of his voice. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to murmur the songs. What are you doing, guy? You know? Or he just would, like, be so glad to be there. He'd, like, embrace the people and, you know, just talk about how great it was to be. And then the fellowship, brothers dwelling in unity. I was like, ah, this is weird. What's going on? And one of the other things I remember about the guy was you were trained in this Episcopal church that you would come into the church, and before you took your seats, there was a tiny ritual that was called genuflecting. And genuflecting is supposed to mean taking a knee, but I would kind of do this thing like looking at my mom out of the corner of my eye. Tiny bow. World's tiniest bow to kind of fulfill the requirement, and then I'd go in the seat and I'd be like, oh, that's the most ridiculous thing. Every time I come to the church, we have to do this. Well, this guy... You know, lo and behold, when he comes into the church every day, he'd like, he actually takes the knee. 
And he's like, you know, raising his hand. I'm like, what is going on with that guy? Well, it's funny. When I think about that now, that was before anybody in my family knew who Jesus was, really. Even though we were going to this church, hearing his name and, you know, participating, it wasn't getting through to any of us. And that guy was actually probably the first in a long line of people that were actually sharing the message of the gospel with us. And I just think of how long it took me to come to the, the point to realize what he was doing. Sure, the guy was awkward, crazy, but I, he was sharing about Jesus with me. And I didn't, I didn't get that for an, another, like, ten years. So we ought to take care. We're a cynical bunch sometimes. But the Lord breaks through that, doesn't he? He's just so faithful. We have to take care when we go up, want to go up anyway in our own strength. The other part of this mirror is these people said, no promised land for us, no enemies, and then they're rebuked, and they're like, we're going to take the land. Isn't that amazing? You know, so it shows something about the human heart that when we fail, sometimes we, our first response is, I'll fix it, or I'll do something about it, which is very different sometimes than repenting. But I think the main thing we're supposed to see in this, if, there's a, if all that's a mirror to us, Boy, there is one more thing to see, and that is, and this is what Moses is all about. We learn this in the New Testament over and over again. Moses was a mediator, and he was a prophet, and he was a leader, but he was pointing to a better mediator, a better go-between. That Moses, he's making a plea to God, and God hears that plea, but in Jesus Christ, we have someone who is making the sinner's plea in the throne room of heaven in a way that God hears permanently and finally. And it's not just a plea based on what God has promised. He is the promise. And so as Jesus stands before the Father on our behalf today, and he shows those wounds, and those wounds speak to the Father and say, sins are atoned for. Just as real as these wounds are, so my church has been purchased. There is no more payment for sin. Just as sure as he shows the wound in his side. And there is no more wrath for the people of God. He makes that satisfying appeal at all times on our behalf. We go to glory. We're going to see the wounds. We're going to see that it's been effective. Every single one of us. That's the destiny. If you are in Christ, you'll be so glad to see him. And so glad to see that he's represented you so well and that his plea in his own body and broken body and poured out blood has been absolutely effective for the people of God. It's not just a passing over of sin, but a satisfaction of a holy God whose just wrath is appeased once and for all because Jesus Christ is the mediator and has died for sinners. Jesus is a better mediator. And so we ought to take care, for we have come to share in Jesus Christ. And as we go to the table, the Lord's table, we'll keep on thinking.